You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi, everyone. My name is Frank Rock, and welcome to the From the Hack Podcast. It's the last episode of 2023, so buckle up. We have four interviews with two From the Hack semi-regulars that you all enjoy watching both on the ice and in interviews. And we have two very special guests making their first ever appearance on the From the Hack Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. Before moving on with today's show, I wanted to wish everyone a peaceful and happy holiday season. Please hug your loved ones and enjoy every minute you can with friends and family. Yes, even that annoying uncle who cheers for the Detroit Red Wings, even though he can't remember why. My first guest this week is Laura Walker, who's had a busy couple of months reaching number one in the World Mixed Doubles rankings with Kirk Myers and taking on a new role as a board member with Curling Canada. Laura, you and Kirk Myers recently reached number one in the world mixed doubles rankings. Uh, you must be happy with the team's consistency this year, reaching the semifinals in each event together, winning once and reaching two other finals. Yeah, I think that's the key word for us is consistency. And um, we are, we're finding ways to win even when we're maybe not playing our best. And I think it's just kind of really rewarding to see the work that we've been putting in throughout the season uh, really pay off and having us kind of go deep in the playoffs and, like I said, find ways to win um, and, and just having a really good year. So I think that's a lot of fun when you can see the, that work start to pay off and it just makes you want to put in even more to, to move that needle a little bit further. Has reaching number one in the world rankings validated the decision that you and Kirk made at the start of the cycle to focus mainly on mixed doubles during this Olympic cycle? It does for sure. Yeah, we, um, you know, neither of us have ever been number one in the world in men's or women's. So um, I think it, it just goes to show how well we work together and um, and that we can we can play this consistency consistently well across the course of a season. And it, it definitely does feel good um, to see it all come together. Now, Curling Canada announced earlier this year, uh, Laura, that the mixed doubles trials will be held about a year from now in December of uh, 2024, some 14 months before the Olympics in, uh, in Italy. Were you satisfied with the decision to host the mixed doubles trials that long before the start of the Olympics? A hundred percent, yeah. I think that... I mean, ideally, sure, would it be a little bit closer to the Olympics? Yes, but, um, you know, as, as you get later into a season you start running into play down season um, men's and women's provincials scotties briars men's and women's trials that sorts of thing so i think that um i do think that our best curlers in the country um you know are, are still playing men's and women's there's still some some teams that are comprised of of two players that play on really good men's and women's teams that have a really good chance to win the trials and medal for Canada at the Olympics. And I don't think our country is quite in a place yet where we can eliminate those teams from our, our trials, our nationals, that sort of thing, if we want to compete at the world stage. So I think it's important to have those teams a part of it. And this allows for those teams to be a part of it. And this also allows for whoever wins to spend, you know, a good chunk of time being team Canada learning, I think to, you know, you look at some of those mixed doubles teams that I just spoke about and, and they might not have had, 
you know, 100 games in a season under their belt, like someone like Kirk and I might have had. So this allows them to kind of play more games, figure out how they communicate, figure out how they work together, um, and just really be well prepared. I think that where it was before was obviously way too close. And um, if this is where they had to put it to give more time, then um, I think it, it was a great decision. And I, I think it was the right thing to do. I'm just wondering, though, uh, Laura, if the mixed doubles trials are won by a team consisting of players also on elite men's and women's teams, might it be difficult for them to then balance competing in mixed doubles to prepare for the games while also playing a full schedule with their men's or women's team, also making a run at qualifying for the same Olympics? I think that this is a very valid point, and I think that's part of why they moved the trials to where they did. Um, This allows teams to really plan and decide if they want to be playing in both if they want where it was before it was like okay let's put it all in um on our four-person team and if it doesn't work out let's just toss a team into the mixed doubles trials and some of those players were good enough to win the trials but then you don't have that kind of time under your belt like i said to um really be as prepared as you can be for the olympics i think this way you know if if a player who plays both decides like okay, I'm looking at my next year if we were to win the mixed doubles trials i can only play x number of events Um, on either side, I'm not comfortable with that, I'm not going to play mixed doubles, and then at least they can make that decision um, as a team with their four-person team, they can talk to um, our coaching staff, like with Scott Fife or David Murdoch, whoever their coach is on on their own teams, and decide if, if they can really make it work, and I think the whole point of putting it where it is is that you have a really solid plan going into even the trials, so that if you win the trials, you know what your year is going to look like, so hopefully that just helps teams kind of get ahead of these things and decide if they actually feel like they can do both or not. Laura, earlier you mentioned that Canada doesn't have the depth in mixed doubles uh, specialists yet to open the mixed doubles trials to teams solely focus on that discipline. When I spoke to Jeff Stoughton of Curling Canada a few weeks after mixed doubles was added to the Olympic program back in 2017, he mentioned that he envisioned a time when mixed doubles competition in the country would consist mostly of players competing in that discipline and not in men's and women's curling, or the four-person events, if you will. How close are we to a day when Canada's mixed doubles representatives at the Olympics and the World Championships will come from a pool of teams strictly focused on mixed doubles? Um, I, I think you'll start to see maybe a few more teams in this upcoming uh, Olympic cycle, the, you know, after the next one, after the one that we're currently in, you'll, you might see a few more. And then um, by one more quad after that, you might see it really start to kind of split one way or the other. I think um, hopefully just the way that resources are put into mixed doubles, you know, with the trials being, being earlier, the way that the game is growing, um, I'm hoping that there's more opportunities for teams to to just play mixed doubles and not feel like they're like, you know, quote unquote, missing out on sponsorship opportunities or kind of playing in those those big events. I, I hope that they'll start to exist in both. And as soon as they start to exist in both, then that's when I think you'll see um, a little bit more of a divide of, of some of your top players choosing to, to focus exclusively on mixed doubles. I don't think that we're there yet, and I doubt we'll get there in this next upcoming quad, but maybe the one after that. But it's it's we're getting there, I think. <laughs> I really believe, Laura, that one of the keys to further developing the mixed doubles discipline is an increase in the number of mixed doubles events that attract top teams from around the world the way the Super Series has done over the past two seasons. How important is it for the Super Series to grow in size and importance over the next few years to help grow that first true generation of mixed doubles specialists, at least here in North America? Although I do know that the term specialist is frowned upon by some people. Uh, It's without it, we're not going to see 
yeah, I think you can call them specialists. I don't know. That's that's what they're doing. They're specializing in mixed doubles, for example. But um, I don't think you'll see those those kind of specialists without a tour like um, the Super Series. And uh, I I think that something getting something like that off the ground is extremely difficult. And I just have to give complete kudos to Wayne Tuck and Jay Allen and and their team for for getting this started and for kind of sticking through some of the tough times in getting it off the ground. And I think that it's hopefully getting closer to being what they envision it to be. And you know, maybe next season or, or coming up, hopefully sometime in the next year or two, if this thing keeps going, we'll see more TV time, we'll see more sponsors, we'll see more of those things that we need to get mixed doubles to a similar level as, as to what men's and women's are. So um, when you say how important it is, it's it's absolutely vital and it's something that's needed to keep mixed doubles on the, the trajectory that it's on. Now, we keep hearing how important the next generation of curlers will be to growing mixed doubles as a discipline, Laura. Yet, Curling Canada still does not host a Canadian Curling Mixed Doubles Championship. How important would a national championship be in helping expedite interest in the mixed doubles discipline among younger curlers? I think that that would be fantastic. There are a few initiatives where Curling Canada is focusing, I guess, on on younger players with mixed doubles. Like we have a mixed doubles team going to the Youth Olympics, um, things like that, that hopefully will continue to expand. Uh, I think the issue right now with adding something like a mixed doubles junior championship, which I would love to see uh, for the record, is, is just the timing of it. It's like, where do you put another national championship um, in, in the schedule that currently exists when you look at U18, U21, uh, men's, women's, current mixed doubles, university, college, like all the things that happen already in a season, it's really difficult to, to put that in a reasonable time. Hopefully they can find a time for it and hopefully it happens. But I think that that's where we're in this like weird spot of um, coexisting with men's, women's, junior men's and women's and mixed doubles and trying to do it all, maybe, you know, in a few years time when we do start to see it separate a little bit more, um, Curling Canada or whoever would be okay with putting an event like that conflicting with something else that they could be playing in in men's and women's. And I think that that's where a lot of events struggle right now is it's like you look at the weekends that exist and you want to put a mixed doubles event, you know, and they're like, oh, but it's the Red Deer men's and women's or it's a, a slam or it's this or that. And eventually if we want to have enough good events on the schedule, we're going to have to start putting them on the same weekends and at the same time. So that's um, something that uh, Curling Canada is going to have to take a look at, I guess, and um, see if they can fit it in, because I do think that that would be great for the younger players just to really get a taste of both and get a taste of both at a high level and see which one suits them better and which one they want to put their focus into. You just touched on scheduling, which has been a bee in my bonnet for a few years now, while Laura, I find it remarkable that the different stakeholders do not sit together each spring to plan the schedule for the following season to give teams and events both in Canada and around the world a better idea of what type of field they will be able to draw to their events. In other sports like golf and tennis, it seems like the events are mostly held on the same weekend each season. In curling, specifically when it comes to the slams, they will occasionally move an event up or back a week to accommodate a venue or for TV network considerations. And, and changes like that can have a significant impact on the field that events uh, can attract a week prior to or a week following a slam. Is it not time to get everyone, all the stakeholders around the table and devise a schedule that works for everyone? Yes. When you started talking about that, my first thought was you need to get everyone in a room um, a reasonable amount of time before the season starts. I think that's also part of the problem is that events get added, um, you know, throughout the summer, you think you have a schedule together and then all of a sudden this other one pops up and you're like, oh, that might be good. And then everything changes. So 
I think there's, there's kind of almost like a hierarchy of, of events and, um, typically the kind of bigger ones are the ones that most of the teams don't want to miss are set a little bit further in advance. We obviously know when the Scotties and the Briar are, we, um, you know, once the slams are set, the things like the Europeans, now the Pan Continentals, um, once all of that is kind of in place and on the schedule, then that's the time that I think that the, the tour events, those WCT events that are typically held in curling clubs and that sort of thing, if you want to run an event, you are on this, you know, call, this town hall, this whatever on this day, and let's all try to figure it out. Let's try to spread our events out across the country. If you have two events happening within a few hours of each other, maybe we could you put our heads together and run them at the same place and make it a really good event, things like that, where um, I, I just think there's not enough communication within events, within um, between events. And it's not really the fault of the event organizers, like nothing, there's just nothing that, no, no structure that really exists to help them put that into place. So um, in a perfect world, I think everyone works together and, and we find ways. And I, I don't think that you can't run events on the same weekend. I do think you can have, for example, a mixed doubles and a men's and women's event on the same weekend. I think that you can have a men's event this part of the country and that part of the country um, I, or in a different country. I just think that there needs to be a little bit more talk between everyone to avoid that happening and then um, and, and just make it kind of a, a, a more well thought out schedule for the teams that are playing in it. Curling Canada recently announced that you had been added to their board of directors, Laura. Was it something that you were nominated for, or did you apply for this spot? And also, what are you hoping to accomplish as a voice of the athletes on the board at Curling Canada? Um, I guess a little bit of both with the appointed, nominated sort of question that you had. Um, it, it came forward through our Athletes Council, um, which came together a couple of years ago, kind of with the help of, of the past CEO, Catherine Henderson. Um, a, a group of us, you know, put together this group of athletes that wanted to start having a little bit more of a voice, wanted to be a little bit more on the same page. Um, and from that group, we requested um, to talk to the board of directors on, with Curling Canada and request to have, um, you know, a seat at the board to be a little bit more present in um, that kind of decision making and, and governance level and um, the board work together to find a way to make that happen. And then within our Athletes Council, um, I was just kind of the person that made sense to take on that role because I had done a little bit of kind of the background uh, work. I guess I was the one that went to meet with the board. Um, I attended a, a forum put on by a, an organization called Athletes Can that had a whole weekend about athlete governance. So I just had a little bit more of that background and I just seemed to kind of um, make sense to do it for this one year. And then after this year, it will be like a more formally um, elected position. And um, we're kind of sorting out the details right now of what that looks like. And that's going to be a big part of my role on the board uh, this year. And finally, Laura, speaking of athlete representation, one of the ongoing sources of frustration for many athletes in the sport has been the difficulty in creating an association representing the players' interests. Now, I know there is a group in place at the moment, but I've heard several players concerned about how slow-moving the evolution of this new group has been. How important would a strong and active players' association be, given that a united voice always seems to have more impact? Um, yeah, I was a player. I would love to see it. I just think that it's, um, it's really difficult when we have so many different kind of like levels of play. You have the teams that are constantly in the slams. You have those kind of bubble teams. You have the teams playing in WCT events. You have teams from different countries. Like I, I would say that teams from 
maybe one country have extremely different priorities from teams from another country. And so it's just really difficult to get um, kind of all of us on the same page. And you do need, you know, somebody in a position to put that together and lead it. And it probably can't be an active player, but then who is that person who, um, you know, has the time to commit to that unless they're being paid? And then where do you find the money? And there's just like a whole host of things that is makes it very difficult in our sport being like this, it's an amateur sport, but that like kind of people make a little bit of money at, and it's, there's like so many gray areas. Um, so I think that as a player, I would love to see it. I just honestly don't really know where to start. And <laughs> I'm going to focus my efforts on what I'm doing here, which just specifically relates to Canada and any sort of players association, I think has to be for the players as a whole across the entire world. My next guest this week has a familiar name, but makes her first appearance on the podcast. Alyssa Nedwin joined us just a few days after Team Play of Alberta qualified Canada for the 2024 World Junior Championships by finishing second at the World Junior B Division Championships in Finland. Alyssa, I want to ask you about that first game that you played in Finland against Romania with that Maple Leaf on your back. It must have felt nice to get off to such a big early lead in that game, breathe a little easier and get the event off on the right foot. Yeah, well, we actually started off with not even hitting the house for LSD. So it was a little bit of a wake-up call for us being like, okay, time to start playing here. So getting that lead definitely relaxed us. Um, but yeah, our intensity was all there. Our focus was there. And we just had a really good game. So it was great to come out and have a good start to kind of get us going for the week. Now let's fast forward to your quarterfinal game versus Denmark, uh, Alyssa. Uh, was the team squeezing the brooms a little tighter in that game, knowing that a win in the quarterfinals would achieve your objective of qualifying Canada for the 2024 World Junior Championships? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we always do is we just stick to our routines. So before the game, we just kind of did our warm-up. We did our pregame practice, and we felt pretty good. But honestly, during that game, it was probably the most stressful time of my life. Like, I was... I was definitely stressed and like I think you could tell the team was but I thought we also handled it really well and we just like I said like just kept sticking to our routines and playing the game and trusting the process. Now if the quarterfinal game was not stressful enough you went to an extra end in that game. For those who did not get to see the game online Alyssa were you in a position to give up more than a deuce in the eighth and how did the extra end play out? Well our thought going into the eighth end was we could give up two. Like the nice thing about that is we would go into the ninth with hammer. And um, statistically that is an advantage to whoever has hammer. So after eight and we, when we gave up two, I think that she made an amazing shot and the shot was definitely there. So when she made that, we were like, okay, that's okay. It's like playing, playing the last end with hammer. So what we said is like, you know, at our uh, end meeting, we were just like, okay, got to keep it open and give Mila a shot for the win. And she made it. And thankfully, we won. So, yeah. So did you take a big sigh of relief after winning that quarterfinal game? Oh, absolutely. I think we were all pretty pumped to know that we actually made it to the A's. And I think we were just honestly so proud because to us, like, I guess to everyone playing the quarters, like, as much as you want to be first in the event, that is almost the most important game because it guarantees you a spot. And that's just definitely a stressor and something that everyone's working towards is getting into the A-Worlds and going back to Finland. 
So tell me how the team went about regaining your focus, uh, Alyssa, for the semifinals and the final after you had uh, accomplished your main goal of qualifying Canada for the 2024 World Juniors. Yeah, well, one thing we always do is we take away what we can improve on for the next game. So we always talk about communication and everything. And thankfully, because, I mean, we played lots of games during the event, we kind of knew, like, the sheets and stuff. So we just made sure that we talked about, like, shape and everything. And we were just, we weren't expecting any new surprises going into the game, which made us a little more relieved and a little more easygoing during the game. All right, Alyssa, your last name, Nedwin, is well known in the Canadian curling community, obviously. Your mom and dad are Canadian champions who have represented Canada internationally. What insights did they share with you about everything that comes with representing Canada at an international event? Yeah, they definitely said, like, one thing that they did is they recognized that, yeah, there is a lot of pressure being Team Canada, but the nice thing is you also have the support of everyone. So I guess one thing that I always did is, like, I thought not only is it pressure, but it's just everyone in our country is supporting us and trying to get us to that next step because all everyone really wants is for us to do well so that we can guarantee Canada a good spot in the next world. So I think it's just knowing that there's support behind everyone and everyone watching, even though they're getting up at like one in the morning, they're still watching because they want us to do good. Now the world juniors in February are taking place in the same city in Finland and the same venue as the B division championships that you just completed. I realize that the ice will likely be a little different, but it certainly has to feel good knowing you're going to be returning to a venue you're familiar with for the 2024 world juniors. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is we learned what we can and can't plug into the outlets. (laughs) Uh, We had a heated blanket explode on us, which was kind of sad. But, I mean, the volunteers were amazing there, and we just loved the venue. So I think it's just knowing what we can and can't pack is the biggest thing because going anywhere, like like you said, the ice is probably going to be a little bit different because it's arena ice. So we're going to have to restart on that. But I think just... Like we said at the beginning of the week, like sticking to our routines and stuff, the advantages knowing the food there and just the hospitality is great. So it's really great knowing that we can go back to the same place. That's just an amazing host. Now, as we just mentioned, you will be returning to Finland in early February. Will the team be playing any events between now and then to get a few reps in before Worlds? I mean, like you said, like the girls are going to go to Korea. So they're going to be playing then. Uh, Mila and I are probably going to try to get in a couple ladies events because we want to keep our legs underneath us and getting in that game repetition to kind of just know that we're going to keep playing the same. So we're going to try to do some ladies stuff. And we have also though the U20 provincials and then hopefully we'll make it to U20 nationals and everything. So we're going to do lots of training weekends though, as it will help us kind of just get our feet underneath us. You just mentioned your skip, uh, Myla Plett. Uh, Myla's been on a guest on the podcast a couple of times now, and when I ask her about her success, she always deflects it to having a good team in front of her. Tell me a little bit about Myla as a skip and what she brings to the team. Yeah, well, Myla, I would have to say, is just honestly one of the smartest people I know. Uh, She is very calm and confident, which makes us, as a team, be able to just trust her and trust kind of everything she's doing. I would say when we play good, it's because she provides us the ice to be able to do that. Um, She gets the communication going throughout the team, 
which is honestly just key to playing well. So she's just an amazing skip. Finally, Alyssa, let me ask you about uh, a question about uh, your trip to Finland. Uh, tell me about one food that you'd never heard of before going to Finland and that you tried and enjoyed while you were there. Oh, boy. I don't even know if I can say it right. But, I mean, I tried um, soup dumplings, and you have to, like, turn them upside down and, like, I don't know, drink the juice out of it, and that was interesting. Um, oh, I also tried reindeer meat at a Christmas market, and it was actually pretty good. My next guest is Deanna Chilton, who not only happens to be one of the rising junior stars in Northern Ontario curling, but she also happens to curl out of the best damn curling club in the world. There, I said it. All right, Deanna, I already happen to know that you play out of the best curling club in the world, but can you tell the audience what club you play out of and how long you've been curling? So I play out of the McIntyre Curling Club in Timmins, Ontario, and I've been playing for about 10 years now. So tell me how you first got interested in curling, uh, Deanna. So my dad's side of the family, it, they're very big on curling. So my dad was a curler, my uncle's a curler, my grandpa's a curler. So it was really just a family thing. So me and my sister, now we both curl. So just our family was interested, so we're interested. <laughs> I've heard you have a pretty busy schedule this season. What events have you played in and what you got on tap uh, coming up in the second half of the season? So, so far, like at the start of our season, we played in the OVCA Junior Super Spiel in Ottawa against teams from all over Canada. And then we participated in the Tritown Toyota Youth Challenge in New Liskard, where we placed third. And then at our home club, we played in the Ontario Winter Games Qualifier, and we won. So now we're off to the Ontario Winter Games coming up in February. Um, our upcoming events are in January. So first we are traveling to Longlac for the U18 Provincials. And if we qualify, we head to the U18 National Championships in Ottawa. And then afterwards, we go to the U21 Provincial and the Ontario Winter Games. You just mentioned the U18s a moment ago, Deanna. Let's backtrack to last season when the Canadian under-18s were hosted at your home club in Timmins. And your team just missed out on qualifying to play nationals at home. How much of a bummer was that for you and the team, just missing out finishing third at the qualifier when a top two was needed to qualify for the U18s in Timmins? Yeah, it was disappointing, but... Knowing that our that the national was being held in Timmins, it was very disappointing not being able to have a home crowd there for us. But it's okay because we got to cheer on the teams in our home club. Now, I do know that you spent a lot of times at the U18s uh, last year. Were you mostly enjoying the action, Deanna? Or were you paying close attention to the approaches and the strategies of different teams in the hope of learning stuff that you could implement with your team moving forward? You know, a little bit of both. I mean, it was nice to see athletes my own age compete at a national event. And it showed me and my team that we could play at that level and how great it would be to represent our province. Seeing these young athletes made us more determined to be successful like them. And it made me personally more motivated to do my best. And it was just a, it was just a great experience seeing teams from all over Canada playing in our home club. It was great. So you didn't compete at Nationals in Timmins last year, but you did get to go on the ice and throw some rocks. And you ended up on a sheet next to a certain Mr. Gushu. Can you share that story with our audience? Yeah, so we were just, we wanted to have the experience to throw rocks on arena ice. So we were practicing beside him and he offered to play a four against one game. 
and it was and he was it was great he was really really patient with us and he even gave me a do-over when I missed my last shot so it was a great experience being able to share the ice with an Olympic champions and a many-time Briar champion. <laughs> was Brad already on the ice when uh, your team arrived, uh, Deanna, or did you all see him show up and have a, oh, geez, it's Brad Gushu and he's about to throw rocks on the sheet next to us moment? He was on the sheet before us, but there was only one sheet left, so we had to go on that sheet. But when he approached us, we were all trying to play cool, but in reality, we were all fangirling. So it, it was so cool. It was a great experience. Deanna, I've spoken with some of the best players in the history of the sport, and they keep telling me that they keep uh, learning different things about the sport, even as they, you know, approach their 40s and after winning world championships and gold medals at the Olympics and and all of that uh, stuff. Uh, You're still fairly early in your curling journey. When you're watching a game on TV, do you find yourself watching as a fan, or are you trying to learn from how different teams approach different situations during games? Yeah, exactly. So I'll try to watch curling anytime that it's on TV. And when I do, I really pay attention um, to their strategy as a skip. So I would talk strategy with my dad or my coach, and I would really listen to the communication so that maybe we could implement some of their scripting in our routine to deepen it and make it better. You just mentioned skipping, uh, Deanna. What do you like the most about skipping, and what do you find the most challenging about the position? So I really enjoy the strategy and thinking ahead about the um, upcoming shots and being able to like do strategy in my head. And what I don't like about my position is since I don't soup anymore, I often get really cold standing there. It doesn't matter how many layers I put on, I'm always cold. And the harder parts of my position is having to make the final shots and the pressure that comes along with it and having my team counting on me to make the shot. All right, Deanna, let's finish this off with a few rapid-fire questions. Who's your favorite curler? Rachel Holman. Intern or outturn? Outturn. What is your fondest curling memory so far? Uh, Placing third at the Provincial last year, the U18. What is the coolest curling event you've seen live? Ooh, the Briar last year. If you could parachute in to play one game for one team, which team would it be? Ooh, Anna Hasselborg. And finally, Deanna, if you had five minutes to talk curling with Jennifer Jones, what would you ask her? Definitely questions about strategy. My final guest of 2023 is a From the Hack favorite. Mark Kennedy joined me to talk about Team Botcher's season, their growth as a team over the past year and a half, and we also tackled some of curling's hot-button topics. Mark, from an outsider's perspective, it certainly seems like Team Botcher is off to a solid start this season, winning three events and playing well in a number of other big events. Are you and the team satisfied with the start you've had to your season? I think uh, overall, Frank, we're pretty happy with how the season's gone. Um, I think we're a little, you know, disappointed in a couple of the results lately. You know, I mean, semifinals are great, but we're, you know, we're itching to win some big events. So I think um, we're a little disappointed in that. But overall, you know, three wins. Um, I think we qualified in every event uh, we're making semis and finals pretty consistently. So overall, a great season for Team Botcher. And now we're just going to try to narrow in on trying to win a couple of the big ones. So what's up with this Italian team that have been playing so well this year, Mark, and have defeated uh, Team Botcher at all three slams so far this season? Well, you know what? They are a fantastic curling team. And we had a conversation on the weekend about 
you know, having a team like that around isn't a bad thing because they are just constantly pushing us to get better. Um, you know, they don't, they, they punish you for mistakes. They, they're, they're great at rock positioning. Um, you know, it's not a bad thing to be looking up to them saying, okay, where can we get better? How can we improve? Um, they're kind of forcing everybody to do that. And that's, that's not a bad thing. So we just, we want to keep getting opportunities to play against them. And we've had some great battles with them. It's really coming down to one or two shots here and there. And, um, yeah, they're just, they're great for the sport right now and they're fun to watch. From what you've been able to observe, uh, Mark, what has changed with Team Retornas that has allowed them to take this next big step in their growth as a team to a point where they are ranked number one in the world and have won three straight Grand Slam events this season? Oh, uh, you know, you'd have to ask them. But f from our perspective, it just looks like a team that is, you know, they're obviously working very hard at their craft. Um, and I think in the last year or two, they've just realized that they are good enough to win. I think once you get over that hump of of learning how to win, it starts to get a little bit easier and it starts to, uh, um, you know, you start to realize that the things that you're doing are the right things and it just gives you that extra boost of confidence. So they're just playing with a lot of confidence right now, you know, especially Joel. He's made some big shots in these big games and yeah, they just, they believe in each other. They believe in themselves and they are approaching the game with a lot of confidence. So um you know, that's that's why they're winning. And I think a lot of teams like ours are looking at them going, you know, are they doing anything different? You know, what are the what are the reasons they have a little bit of an edge and, and trying to um, trying to catch up a little bit? And, and that's OK. Like I said, I I go back to our days with the Kevin Martin team. I think there was a time where, you know, we won five slams in a row. We were we were so dominant to a point. I think he, we got a little bit complacent because there wasn't a lot of people pushing us and we got pretty, you know, comfortable in the way we were doing things and we weren't really pushing ourselves to get better. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't hate having a team like that around to just constantly make us get better. When we chatted at the beginning of last season, uh, Mark, uh, you mentioned that one of the more important things when you put together a new team, especially one where each player has had great success independently of each other, is to create a process through which each player understands the role they need to play on the team, which often leads to better results on the ice. In short, throwing four talented players together was no longer enough to get you through a season. It's one thing to discuss the process, Mark. Another thing to put it into practice. A year and a half into the current Olympic cycle, is Team Botcher satisfied with where you are in the process? Well, I'll tell you the whole first season is pretty much trying to connect those four philosophies and trying to find out what the Team Botcher way is. So, you know, last year was full of long discussions and debates, you know, everything from rock position to line of delivery to strategy to you name it. We spent as much room in a, in a board or as much time in a boardroom as we did on the ice, trying to figure the stuff out. Um, I think a big reason for our success this year is that some of those systems have been put into place and now it's about just executing on the systems and, and, you know, throwing, just just learning but really in a in a way of following the team botcher way and you know we've we've put a lot of time and effort into that and i think we're starting to reap some of the rewards of that hard practice and now when we're out on the ice it's we know what we need to do we know how to execute we know how brandon wants us to throw the curling rock and um we can just go out there and play so we're we're still in that process we're still learning we're still growing but we can definitely see that we're getting better and um like frank we've had a terrific season 
you know, even the games we lose, we're, we're in them right to the bitter end. Um, so we're definitely starting to see, we're definitely starting to reap the rewards. As we speak, Mark, uh, your team is the only Canadian men's team currently in the top five of the world rankings. The fact that other countries have caught up to Canada is no longer a big secret in the curling community. Are we at a point now, Mark, where the sport has plateaued from a performance perspective, where the top teams are all quite similar to each other as far as abilities and techniques are concerned? Or is there still room to grow from from a player's perspective for Canadian teams, perhaps, to regain that edge that uh, Canadian curlers had so many years uh, running there back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s? You know, we're a team for example, that knew that if we wanted to compete with the best teams, we were going to have to do things differently than we'd done in the past. So that included four guys in the same province, more training camps together, um, a coach that understood what we were going to need and how we were going to get there. You know, we really had to create a foundation so that we could build and grow and learn and improve. Um, And that has meant, you know, more hours put into the game than than I've ever put in in my career in order to just keep up with those professional international teams there. The opportunity is there for lots of Canadian teams to do that. Um, You know, I can't speak for all of them, but I think some of them probably need to do a little more. You know, we've got a lot of talented curlers in this country and, you know, to your earlier point, you can't just put four talented players together anymore and expect success. There's a ton more that goes into it. So, um, you know, we've got some great Canadian teams and, you know, the Matt Dunstone team and Brad Gushu team. I mean, those are elite teams that, you know, may be having just a little bit of an off season, but they're certainly putting the time and effort in to be a top team. Um, But your next level of Canadian teams, yeah, they... uh, (laughs) it's hard to keep up with what the international teams are doing. You know, their, their athleticism, how hard they're working, how much time they're putting in. Um, they're really setting the tone for, for a professional curling tour. The other side of it though, is, you, you know, they're, they're getting better at events here in Canada. So, you know, the other part of that question is that at what, at what time, at what point in time do, uh, Canadians get a little more selfish here and and have our own little tour maybe to help each other get better as opposed to just creating a a landscape where international teams can come and thrive and improve so yeah it's a, it's a big loaded question frank but there's certainly room for canadian curlers and curling teams to to improve no question now, one of the questions that comes up a lot, Mark, is whether there's a pathway for young Canadian players and teams to compete at the highest level of the sport. I mean, in reality, getting into the slams is more difficult and complicated than ever, as it should be. And the current curling schedule has also created a landscape where it's increasingly difficult for young Canadian teams to get reps against some of the more established Canadian teams, such as Team Botcher. And, and these young teams often find themselves then competing at tour events against teams from countries such as Korea and Japan and Scotland, who fund those athletes to travel to Canada to compete. Now, in contrast, funding is much more difficult for young Tier 2 Canadian teams to come by. So I'm I'm wondering, as someone who's been around the sport a lot, who has been funded uh, through Curling Canada and, uh, and through Own the Podium at different times in your career, are you concerned that the pathway for young Canadian players has gotten so restrictive, Mark, that we will continue to lose young, very talented curlers because they simply can't afford to stay in the sport? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an issue. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a big fan of David Murdoch. All you got to do is sit down and have a conversation with Dave, and and the guy has a lot of ideas 
on how to improve the Canadian curling landscape. Uh, and a big part of that includes that next level of young curlers um, and even, you know, call them the tier two curlers right now, giving them more opportunities to play top level curling. You know, he's got a lot of ideas. I, I think he's still kind of getting his feet wet and getting comfortable in within Canadian curling. And, and I think he'll have some major impacts in the next few years on what the future of curling looks like at a competitive level in Canada. So, you know, I'm going to, whatever we can do to support him, we will. And, you know, I know there's some ideas he has that probably haven't even been discussed with us yet. So he sees that he knows that that's an issue. Um, The other side of that, Frank is these young teams that are coming up. And this is another area where Dave's going to have a big impact on them is just playing the top teams is nice, but really building that foundation you know, especially technical and strategical. You can play the top teams all you want, but you really need to be putting some time in the laboratory building those foundations before you even want to try to compete against those top teams. And I think that's something in Canadian curling that's lacked. You know, here's the thing. If you watch the Scottish curling teams play or if you watch the Swiss curling teams play, a lot of them throw very similar. There's some similarities across those teams because they are working on a lot of the same things when they go back home to practice. They have a, they have systems, they have, they have ways of doing things. A lot of our teams don't. A lot of our teams come home between events. They go out to the rink and they throw, they might throw 60 rocks, but they don't really have a, a plan or a, or a system for what they're trying to do. So it just becomes repetitions and go to the event and you're not really getting any better if you're not working on certain specific things. And this is coming from a 41-year-old guy who feels like only within the last couple of years have we really developed systems for what we're trying to do and how we're trying to improve. So, you know, I'm seeing that across all of elite curling in Canada that a guy like Dave can come in and really help on the technical side of things, really help with the strategic side of things where we are being surpassed by other nations. So... You know, again, it's it's another big question, and we could probably talk about it for hours. But I think Dave has been great for trying to develop a framework for a lot of teams, in the sense of if you really want to compete against the best teams, this is what you need to be doing, or at least some of this is what you need to be doing. If you sit down with Dave and talk to him a little bit about what you know the Bruce Mowitz of the world are doing on a daily basis to prepare for curling, you know those guys are in their National Curling Academy five to six hours a day, five to six days a week, individual practices, team practices in the gym. Are there any teams in Canada putting that level of time and energy and effort in? Not very many. So, you know, you got to be willing to put in the time and effort and the blood, sweat and tears in order to compete these days. And I think that's something that Canadian curling teams need to, especially the young teams need to embrace and commit to if they want to be the best. The clapback you would get from young Canadian curlers on what you just said, Mark, is that you have to be able to afford to take the time required on the ice and in the gym to improve. And that's difficult for young Canadian teams, in part because they don't have access to the level of funding that the top teams receive in other countries. No no question. And you, you nailed it. That's a huge part of it. You know, the finances. I, I, a lot of our young curlers in their 20s end up having to choose between curling and you know, and starting a career. I, I totally empathize and I completely understand. And, and a lot of our conversations with with Dave and Canadian Curling is, or with 
Curling Canada is um, is the amount of funding and where it should be going. And is it is it spread out across too many teams? Should it be narrowed in on a few? Like th- those are discussions that are happening every single day. And what I think you'll see, and you, you notice it with the international teams, is it's becoming a lot more like other amateur sports where people are putting off having kids and, and starting families and, and careers until their curling career is done. So you're going to see younger athletes in the sport, but you're also going to see them leaving the sport a little bit earlier in order to, you know, have families and start a life because you can't really do both at a high level anymore. And you see that a lot in other international sports, right? Whether it's bobsled or, you know, skiing, a, a lot of these athletes will retire in their late twenties or early thirties because they they can't put the time and energy and effort into training anymore. And they want to have a normal life. Curling has always been able for the most part, you could kind of balance that. Um, but we're certainly getting to a level now where you better be putting in, you know, full-time hours to your craft if you want to compete at the top level. So we're definitely seeing an evolution in our sport. Another big picture question for you, Mark. It's no secret that the core curling audience right now skews older, at least in Canada. Is the Canadian curling community doing enough to attract a younger, more diversified audience to the sport? Uh, As the current core audience slowly begins to join what I like to call the big curling club in the sky, it certainly doesn't feel like Canada is having much success in building a new audience among the younger generations. Yeah, that's that's something that's kind of plagued us for a long time. And, you know, our we used to say that the big fan base for curling came from the fact that a lot of us grew up in curling clubs, right? It was our, it was our community center. It was the place to hang out and um, have events together. And a lot of guys, my generation that curl grew up as the, the curling club was their babysitter when mom and dad would go out and play and have a few drinks after uh, that's certainly not the way it is anymore. You know, curling's competing with so many other things in young people's lives, be it other sports or, devices or you name it right it's it we got to be pretty creative on how we bring new people into the game it's a tough one you know I, nolan Thiessen's one of my best friends and we, we've had conversations about it and it's just trying to get eyes on the game and whether it's um some good rivalries or some interesting characters in the sport you know that could always help but yeah it's i think there's also a push to try to get you know more diversity in curling too you know, there's opportunities there to expose other cultures to curling. We're we're obviously a very uh, white dominant sport, I guess you could say. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit careful here, but there's definitely room to reach out to other cultures and have them join our sport as well. So some of that comes down right to the club level too. Like we've got some curling clubs here in, in St. Albert and Edmonton and a couple of managers that have done an unbelievable job of just opening the doors to anybody that wants to come in and learn how to play and you know, I know St. Albert Curling Club here has uh, has a league um, where you can have a six-man team and you rotate and you play six ends and it's really just an introduction to the sport itself. But you'll find that those people are the ones that are turning on the TV now and watching the games. So th- there are ways to do it, but it really comes down to the community level and 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 getting those clubs full and reaching out to different people and getting the school kids and you just we just got to put a little bit more effort in nowadays to to bringing people in as opposed to just expecting them to to come to the sport but anything else specific other than that I'm I'm certain that you have probably some ideas and thoughts but um but I don't know the big answer to that one 
So earlier this week, I posted a blog on the curling news arguing that curling needs more personalities. There are several great personalities in this sport, as we both know. It just seems that they are more girded when they are on the ice. Then just a few hours after posting my blog, Team Botcher posted a video of the team trying to outdo the NFL's Kelsey brothers by singing a holiday song of your own and showing the side of the team that curling fans rarely get to see. How did the video come about and what was the experience like? Uh, you know, it was it was Ben. Ben just said this might be a good idea. I think he had kind of gotten tired over the years of teams just putting out their, you know, Merry Christmas to everybody and thought um, he was definitely inspired by by the Kelsey video and thought this would be something fun to do. And, and we didn't really have any expectations. And we went, uh, we found a studio in Saskatoon, a fellow by the name of Matt, and he was terrific. And the experience was way better than we expected. I think we were all a little nervous. Um, but once we put it together and uh, had a little fun, it was, oh, it was so great. So, and our videographer, Brandon Wu, was able to kind of put it all together and we loved it. We've, we've been smiling about it ever since. And it was just a good way to put something out that, you know, would make people smile and show a little bit of our personalities behind the scenes. And but really, it was just an idea Ben had, and it's kind of grown from there. And yeah, it's become something pretty, uh, pretty cool and pretty special. And to your, to your earlier point, I, I agree with you. But, you know, having been through this myself, we're kind of competing in a time where, you know, social media is so impactful and every move you make and every word you say can be posted online. And so I think you find people are a little bit more reserved because they don't really want that type of exposure, be it positive or negative, if they can avoid it. And it's just, you know, we also have sponsors that we're representing and families that we're representing. So that that extra bit of character and pizzazz maybe gets a little bit muted just because we're aware of the consequences of any potential actions out there. So, that, you know, that may be one of the reasons you don't see any crazy characters out there anymore. But I think kind of what we did with our Christmas video, I think those there are good opportunities out there for us to show our personalities. And, you know, even Benny's sheet show gets a lot of views and a lot of people love that for the same reason is they get to see the curlers smile and have some fun and enjoy each other. Cause you're right. For the most part out there, we're, we're pretty serious and, you know, I know we get messages after games saying you guys should smile more and all that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of my runaround synopsis of the whole thing. But we certainly had fun with that uh, Christmas video, and we've probably committed ourselves to having to do it every year now. <laughs> and finally, Mark, the most important question about the video. What did your girls think? Did they think it was cringe, or did they enjoy it? That's the best part, is they are you know, they can be the ultimate critics and they're going to be completely honest with something, whether it's good or bad. And when we first did it and I sent them a, um, a, a preview of the song, I, I didn't know what I was expecting. And Nicole and my girls called and thought it was amazing. They couldn't believe how good it sounded and they loved it and they couldn't wait to see the video. So that was kind of the first inclination that this might be something really good and people might enjoy it. So yeah, they've been super happy with it. It was a ton of, it was a ton of fun. And, you know, we don't have the best voices, but everybody got in that studio and just kind of let it all out and embraced the moment. And it was a wonderful team bonding experience, too. So I think we're all pretty happy we did it. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Laura, Alyssa, Deanna, and Mark for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network. The Two Girls in the Game Podcast, the Rock Logic Podcast, and the Curling Legends Podcast. 
I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.